I have not had a client complain when I said, you know, excuse me for a few minutes. I'm just going to call another vet in our practice to see what their thoughts on it, just to make sure that I'm not missing anything. And, you know, they're going to be happy because you are taking extra time to make sure that you're doing a good job. Welcome back to That Vet Life. Time to go back through the archives to what was one of the most impactful episodes for me when I was a final year vet student facing the impending transition from student to fully qualified vet. In this episode, you'll hear from Dr. Alexander Pop and Dr. Sarah Brisson when they were in their first years out from vet school. We talk about the challenges every new grad faces as they enter the profession for the first time as a veterinarian and the importance of learning from those around you. Now, I could only record with one of them at a time, so you'll hear from Alex first with Sarah's pre-recorded responses to the questions we answered. If you are a soon-to-be new grad, I highly recommend you listen to this episode. So let's jump into it. So, hey, Alex, thank you so much for joining the podcast. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. I think this will be a pretty interesting topic, um, considering that I haven't quite edited an episode like this before um, and involves so many different voices. But as someone who's just now like this is where you were a year ago and pretty soon I'm doing like the job search and like transitioning from being a student to actually being a veterinarian. So to have people who have just gone through that transition and the thoughts are still fresh in their head, I think will be really helpful for myself and for a lot of the other vet students who are in a similar space in their life. Yeah, I agree. You know, they can they can try to tell us as as good as they can in school about how the transition is going to be, but I feel like so much value comes from people actually out there, and you know, just have recently gone through those transitions. So I'm excited personally to see you know what everyone else in the group has to say today. Yeah, and um, just so other people know, we have new grads who are going to be adding their voice to this discussion. So we have Alex, and we also have Dr. Sarah Brisson, who is a small animal veterinarian. Um, So that kind of, it it outnumbers you, I think, because you're our only large animal voice. Yeah, well, that's okay. I'm used to it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's true. Like being in vet school, there's everybody ends up being smallies, and everybody ends up being girls, so... Yep, and that's exactly the um, my class breakdown was twenty five percent male, seventy five female, and that's what it looks like it is today too. So that's funny. <laughs> yeah, I think I think my class is like seventy thirty. So and it's it's shifting more and more that way, and no one really seems to understand fully why. But I feel like that's like a different discussion um, to what yep. we're talking about today. But yeah, so we have our large animal voice, and then we have um, a small animal voice, and then we have myself, who is the vet student who has yet to go through any of this transition and is still kind of scared out of my mind, um, but excited <laughs> all at once. It's a weird mix of emotions. So before we go um, too much further, I feel like we should give you the floor to kind of talk a little bit about who you are and what kind of practice you are in. So I'll open the floor up to you. Sure. Um, so just so everyone has a little bit of context about kind of how I grew up and um, and why I am here, or at least why I think I'm here. So I was born in Romania, and um, my, my immediate family and I immigrated to the United States when I was two. Um, and we have lived, you know, all up and down the East coast. We started up in New York and then sort of migrated down to North Carolina. But, um, 
my parents were extremely thoughtful in wanting us to, you know, develop relationships with my family. And so we would spend the summers in Romania, you know, months at a time. And um, my grandparents actually lived on a farm and they, it was the classic old McDonald had a farm situation. So they had, you know, a couple cows and chickens and sheep and goats. And I don't know if the wiring in my brain just, just went to thinking that vacation meant working on a farm outside, but I just fell in love with, with animals and knew from a pretty early time that I wanted to do something with, you know, medicine, something with animals, something with business. So um, I graduated from NC State in May and have been working, it'll actually be two months yesterday in a uh, mixed large animal practice in southeastern North Carolina. Um, about 90% of my appointments are mobile. We do also have a hospital, but um, yeah, we see we see everything from horses, cows, all the way down to uh, uh, backyard chickens and bees. Oh, even bees. That's pretty cool. I'm super excited. We we haven't found any first bee clients. It's something that I brought to the practice just because I think bees are super cool and obviously, you know, very important. Um, but I'm excited because I, I know that it's going to it's gonna come and we've got to be there for them. No, yeah, I think that's, that is a huge growing part of agriculture and just veterinary medicine. So that's really kind of cool. It'll be awesome to see how that grows in your practice. But going back to your story, that's pretty cool. Like, you're obviously one of those people who has that background where animals played a role and you're like, I don't really know exactly what I'll do at that point, but they always were there in your life. And you're like, okay, animals, that's what I'm going to do. Um, and then as you grow up, you're like, everything think just seems to like funnel towards veterinary medicine and that's where you've ended up. But did you at any point think that you're going to end up being a small animal vet or was it always, I'm going to work with large animals? For me, it was always large animals. I definitely did not turn a blind eye to small animal medicine. I, you know, got some experience and tried it out and, you know, got my feet wet a little bit going through, but I just, I just cannot, um, I can't stand being inside. And un until the first small animal outdoor practice opens, I think I'm going to be doing large animal <laughs> as long as I can. <laughs> that would be an interesting business initiative, I think. Outdoor <laughs> small animal. I don't know how you would do that, but... I I kind of yeah. agree with you on that. I, I personally kind of struggle being inside all day, every day. Because um, I know sometimes when I'm at practices and like you're all day doing surgery, and I love small animal surgery, but when you're doing that every single day, every now and then I would find myself staring out the window, even if it's like downpouring. And I'm like, look at the rain. And I'm like, what am I even saying? But, <laughs> but no, I totally get yeah. that. And... So far, like you said, it's been two months um, since you started that. So congratulations. That's a pretty big step, I think. Um, but were you looking at anywhere else in the U.S. or were you always like, nope, East Coast, that's where I'm going? Um, I, I considered it. You know, I'm, I'm definitely not one to, um, to shut down any options until I've tried them. So I did several externships in the Midwest, um, you know, in like Texas and Kansas where there's a lot more cow work and um, I 
through that, I found out that, you know, something that was a, a need for me was to be close to family within driving distance of family. So my family lives um, in Southern Virginia and, you know, it's, it was just one of those, I have to be within driving distance to them. So not to say that I wouldn't have practiced elsewhere if that's where they were, but that's kind of what took me to, to this area where I'm in. That's pretty cool. I think a lot of other people have, they either have a similar idea or they want to get as far away as possible. I don't, I haven't really seen too many people do something in between, but um, yeah, I think, I don't know. I'm from up North. And so like you lived in New York for a little bit of time, um, but <laughs> everyone's like, Oh, do you want to work down South? And I'm like, I don't know. Do you want to work up North? I don't know. And they're like, well, the weather's really terrible in the winters up North. Then it's really terrible in the summers down south. And I'm like, there's just no middle ground, apparently. But um, yeah, yeah. where you end up living, was that a, was that a big stress for you um, when you were going through this transition time of student to vet, like thinking about where you were going to end up? So I, um, for me personally, it wasn't as much just because I have an amazing support system and um, my girlfriend actually moved with me. So we do live in the middle of nowhere, but, you know, at least we have each other to, you know, hang out with and, um, and experience this transition together. I feel like it would have been much more difficult to move to such a remote area by myself. Um, so I could definitely see that as being a factor. And I'm not sure, you know, if, if my situation wasn't what it is, if that wouldn't have played an even bigger part and if I would have ended up somewhere else no i think that picks up a a huge point about like obviously transitioning from being a student to a real life veterinarian um a big theme that i keep hearing from everybody else is having your support system and we talk about it like in vet school having your support system but do you think that that kind of support system changes a lot from when you're in vet school to when you're actually in practice absolutely i think that the the kind of the pillars of your support system absolutely change throughout each stage. You know, when you're in school, your support system, you're leaning more towards your, your mentors and your professors and everyone that's helping you understand and succeed in school. Um, versus, you know, when you get out of school, you're, you're in this, I, I think it as, you know, the, the weakest point in, in your professional career because you're still young, you know, you're not established uh, professionally, you don't have much money, likely have huge student loans. So you're just kind of in this, in this pit of, of just this bear almost. And your support system definitely changes. So, you know, having people there that you're going to make friends with and, you know, what are you going to do when you're not working? And um, all of that stuff is definitely important and, and things to think about as you're transitioning because you know you're not going to be a good doctor if you're not happy no that's that's really true i know um there are a couple students who came back after graduating from edinburgh and they spoke um on that kind of topic where they're like when you graduate and you move somewhere like you did to the middle of nowhere it's not like you just um walk downtown and expect to find friends if you will and your work life like your schedule doesn't usually allow a social life unless you are carving out that kind of time. That's one of the things that I think 
pulls me back from the excitement a little bit um, is realizing, okay, as exciting as it is to be like in a new job and see a different part of the world, um, like what are the main things that I want to focus on and be choosing where I'm ending up on? So did you have like two or three things that you're like, wherever I go, I have to have this? Um, I had probably, yeah, probably a couple of things that were as far as location, my must haves. So I wanted to be, um, you know, within driving distance to my family, but also wanted to be, you know, relatively close to a big city center because, you know, most vet schools are in really big cities. For example, NC State is in Raleigh, which is the capital of North Carolina. And there was, I mean, just endless things to do on the weekends and in your spare time. And, you know, you can meet up with friends very easily. Um, So I wanted to have something, not necessarily that I could, you know, go 15 minutes and, you know, go to the movies or go to a restaurant. But I wanted something that, you know, if I wanted to spend a weekend somewhere, I could get there and not be completely remote. So for example, where I am now, um, we're about 30 to 40 minutes from Wilmington, which is like a really big beach town. Um, so it just ended up being, being perfect in that way. When do you think it's good to be starting to think about those? Cause I know some people are like, I'm not going to start looking for jobs or anything until I graduate. And other people started looking two years ago, but, um, for yourself, I guess, when was the pinnacle point where you're like, no, I need to have this base of what do I want my future life to look like? It was, um, it's a really interesting question. For me, it was a, an ongoing process. I don't know if there was, I guess it's something that I was conscious of throughout my entire career as far as school goes. You know, I was always, I was always trying new things, you know, I went and tried the small animal thing. I did externships in places, you know, as, as well traveled as I could. Um, and I, I guess, I don't know if it was a conscious decision or not, but in, in a way I was thinking about seeing what those places are like to get a grasp of, you know, which holds more value to me. Do I value more being in this area or, or being close to, to family? So um, to answer your question, I would definitely be thinking about it before graduation. And the only reason is because of time. So when you get a couple months out from graduation, everyone's going to be scrambling, you know, as little as you want to panic about things. I am a very like stress-free person. I, I, don't, I just deal with stress in different ways, but um, even I kind of found myself just looking for, I just ran out of time. You know, there wasn't time near the end of school before graduation to go and explore all these areas. And um, it made me really thankful for all the externships and stuff that I had, because if I didn't have those experiences to draw from, then I really would have no idea what any other places would have to offer. So definitely, you know, you don't have to make a decision anytime soon, but I would explore your options as early as possible. And I think that kind of depends on the school that you're at. Because I know like here in Edinburgh, we have a lot of opportunities to go and do externships. Um, We call them EMS, extramural studies. 
And over the last mm-hmm. two years of our, like our clinical years, we have to complete like 26 weeks. Uh, 13 are set aside for our final year. But that provides a lot of opportunity to just go around and see different practices for a week, two weeks at a time. Um, for myself and a lot of my friends who plan on going back to the States to practice, it puts us in a little bit of a time crunch because the only time I have to explore practices that I maybe want to work at or just understand what clinic culture looks like back in the States, I only have that short amount of time where I have to think about getting a flight back to the States and um, going back and like planning out my route and like seeing the five or six practices if I'm lucky. So going back to how you said like you should start thinking about those things before graduation, I think if you're, to add on to that, if you're someone who's not in the States for school, you have to almost start that a little bit earlier. Because like right now, I'm lining up all 13 weeks if I can. Um, They're spread out throughout this coming year, but I have to kind of think about, all right, where am I going to go? What do I want to experience? What do I want to get out of each of those experiences? Um, So that's what I would add on to it. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, the, the power of, of social media and just the connectedness of people within our profession, you know, even how, you know, you and I got connected through social media, you can use these outlets to, to ask the questions that you're doing. And that is absolutely helpful because it's, like you said, figuring out the culture of a practice and the culture of, of just different areas of the United States is a really tricky thing to do. So reaching out to people that are living there, practicing there and saying, you know, you know, what do you do on the weekends? How, you know, would you say that you enjoy living where you do and and things like that um, really help. And then you can pinpoint the things that you really want to see for yourself while you kind of um, weed out other things, just using other people. Now, just before we get on with the show, a quick word from our sponsor, which is the Thrive community from us here at Venex. If you're struggling with managing time, feeling like you're an imposter or burning out, then you need to make a change. The good news is you are not broken. You're not a bad fit for the profession. Much more likely you are missing some super important foundational skills no one is teaching at university. Skills that you will learn as part of our Vetex community. The Thrive Community is a race-accredited professional skills course where members receive training, toolkits, and one-to-one coaching to develop these skills. So join hundreds of other vets who've changed their careers for the better as a Thrive member. To learn more and find out if the class is a good fit for you, visit vetexinternational.com today. Now back to the show. So I hope you enjoyed part one. Now we're going to get back to part two of that Vet Life podcast. Over to you, Mo. Yeah, I like how you mentioned um, the different areas of the United States definitely have their own culture, if you will. I think of being here in in the UK, and it's such a tiny island that no matter where I go, like you have the more rural mixed animal practices, and then you have more of the city stuff, but it's kind of homogenous up and down the entire island. Whereas if you go back to the States and just in like one state, like pick, I don't know, Tennessee or something um, compared to Kentucky or something, there's just going to be so much more difference. And it's 
a lot less homogenous, I feel like. Um, so figuring out like what you want in your practice and like going back to like clinic culture, um, mixed animal or large animal practice is obviously just different than small animal practice. But when you were looking at clinics, what, what kind of clinic culture were you looking for? If you can put it into words. So I wanted a, um, I wanted a variety of experiences that I could learn from. So one of my must haves when I was looking for a job was a practice that had at least two practicing veterinarians there. So I didn't, um, I didn't want to only learn from one person. I wanted to learn from multiple people. Um, so I guess that in itself is culture. You know, you can think about the lone practitioner hiring someone so they don't have to be on call every weekend versus the two to three doctor established practice that are trying to grow and they're hiring for completely different reasons. And I feel like where I, where I was and am, I fit in better with the culture of we're an established multi-doctor practice that are looking to grow and we love to teach and, you know, help new grads reach their potential. And um, so multiple doctors and kind of the mentorship support system, um, all of those were really important to me when I was looking. And is that something that like for vet students, you just have to go and try out at these practices because what if you don't have the opportunity to really go and see the practice before you apply? What would you say about that? So some of the questions that um, some of the questions that you can ask during your interviews can really tell you a lot about these practices. And it's, you know, people always tell you to ask questions during interviews, but it's absolutely important that you, you know, don't feel uncomfortable or or feel like you're asking too personal questions during the interviews because, you know, while it it may not be your forever job, but you need to, to realize that you need to be happy where you are. So asking uncomfortable questions, you can just ask, you know, how long is it going to be until I'm by myself? You know, what do you expect of me as a new graduate? What will my first few months look like? Um, what kind of support will I have when I don't know something? Asking all of these questions and not only the text answer that they give you, but the, the attitude that they have about answering these questions will tell you a lot about the practice culture and if they're truly going to be there for you or if they really just want another set of hands. And did you find that with the practices that you applied to and interviewed at, were there ones that you were like, this is an absolute no or this is a this could actually work kind of just from the interview? Um, there were a few. So um, a majority, a grand majority were somewhere towards the, the this could work. I like this practice. Um, there were a couple that I could just get a sense of, you know, these people don't seem happy in what they're doing. They seem very overworked and busy, you know, some of the questions that I asked about, you know, what they like doing on the weekends and what hobbies they have were answered with, you know, just, just bitter, you know, I, Oh, I don't have hobbies. All I do is work. And, you know, from those answers, I can say, well, that's not what I want to do. You know, I, I love practicing medicine, but I also love having a life and love, love doing other things as well. So 
Um, I would say it was probably 80% positive, 20% um, not so positive. Okay. Yeah, I think that's obviously one of those things that I'm like, okay, I'm over here in the, in the UK. I can't see all the practices that I maybe want to apply to. Um, what are the kind of questions that I can ask? And like you just mentioned a whole bunch that I think, like, I honestly didn't even think about, um, like asking them, what do you do on the weekends? Like, what do you actually do for enjoyment? Do you have a life outside of work? Um, it can feel kind of intimidating to ask them those, ask them questions about their life. But I think that is a a huge necessity if that's someplace you're going to end up working one, two, three plus years. Yeah, absolutely. One of my favorite questions to ask practices was um you know how they how they see me growing and where where they see me in a few years after working there and this was the question that every single time i asked it everyone took a pause and had to think about it like i I just love catching people off guard because when you're the interviewer you have all of your questions in the format of the interview kind of set and so to actually have to think and not have something prepared that you're going to say shows a little bit more of the trueness of the, of the person. And I just heard across the spectrum answers, you know, some people answered in terms of, of money. Some people answered in terms of responsibility. Um, some people said, you know, I would like to sell the practice in a few years and just things that you would never know if you didn't ask that question. No, I think that is, I think I'm going to add that to my list of questions to now ask on my interviews. Because um, like you said, it's going to maybe uncover some stones that the interviewer wasn't even prepared to give. And that kind of gives you that raw feel of, okay, this is something that it isn't scripted. Um, so you can get a better idea of what's going on there. So I think moving on from the interview kind of side of the transition, we should probably move into um, some of the whole discussion of what does it look like to actually now be in practice as a new vet. And I have here, um, Sarah sent in her response. Um, So I asked a couple different questions. And one of them was, what do you wish someone had told you about the transition from being a student into a new grad? And so this is what Sarah said. Yeah, so that is what Sarah had to say about um, what she wished someone had told her. And I think about myself right now as I'm like studying for NAVLE and studying for finals and they're asking these tiny little details like what is the name of the mycobacterium that can affect such and such and what is the name of this muscle and insertion and I'm like I don't care and quite frankly I don't think anybody else cares (laughs) but uh, so what do you think about that? So I'm glad that she had that answer because it's um, it's totally true. The and I I think it's it's just a flaw in in the way that that we are taught things. And you know, there's no perfect educational system, and every single school is a little bit different. But from from what I gather, the education that we get, the people that are teaching us are extremely extremely smart, and they they are passionate and know everything there is to know about each thing that they're teaching us. So it's no surprise that they would like to share their passion and their knowledge and teach us all the details and, you know, show us what gets them excited about each different cytokine and and the inflammatory reaction and, and all of these little details. But 
you know, when, when it comes down to it, the things that they tell you are important to know for the exam and the things that they say, oh, you'll need to know this in practice, just take that with a grain of salt because the, the people that, that are professing all this knowledge to us are doing their best, but sometimes, you know, there have been some changes in clinical practice that, um, that don't quite apply to everything that they say. So there's no great way around it, unfortunately, unless you ask people that are fresh in practice, you know, do I really need to know this? Um, how important are, are these details? And like she said, probably a fraction of, of what is, is taught is something that you need to memorize. I would say that it is important to understand it all just so you have context of where you're getting all the information and you're not just a, you know, a, a technician going through a step-by-step -step manual. You need to understand what you're doing, but memorizing fine details, I would agree that isn't quite as important. So don't stress any more than, than you have to, to, uh, to pass your exams. <laughs> and be more willing, more understanding of like, where can you go back to find more information if you do need it? Uh, yeah, that's one thing that I know. I, I look at all this stuff that I have to memorize and study for NAVLI and finals and for answering the question that I know the clinician is going to ask me about the case um, that I have. When in fact, if I'm actually talking one on one with the client, like that would be way over the top of their head. And it's, yeah, <laughs> it's like another level. But that does kind of give me a little bit more, a little bit more relaxation about like, okay, so. And knowing about the pathway of interleukin-3 is not what's going to save my behind um, on the first day of practice. Yeah. <laughs> Personally, I haven't had to fit that out you know, yet, but who knows? I'm only two months in, so I might be totally wrong. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, in your first two months, you haven't had to deal with that. But when you do need to go look up information, do you like being on a mobile service? Um, it's not like you can take a whole library with you, or you can step out the back door and go look through all the books. Like, what kind of sources do you use to refresh your mind on information? I lean very heavily on my colleagues, so I call the other vets in my practice regularly, and you know, either if I'm on the way to a case that I'm unsure about, or even when I'm when I'm at a case. Owners have been extremely understanding for me to say, you know, here's what I know. And, you know, I feel comfortable enough working up a case to the best of my knowledge. But if I ever get into a roadblock, I have not had a client complain when I said, you know, excuse me for a few minutes. I'm just going to call another vet in our practice to see what their thoughts on it, just to make sure that I'm not missing anything. And, you know, they're going to be happy because you are taking extra time to make sure that you're doing a good job. Um, there is no way to carry a full library, but I am very thankful for my iPad, which I have all of my notes in. And um, I don't know what note-taking software you use, but I use Notability with my iPad. You can do you can search, and it will turn my horrible handwriting into text. And it will find all of my notes. And so I can reference things quickly, you know, if I need to, uh, if I just need to refresh on, you know, the pathogenesis of something, if, if I need to explain it or anything like that. So that has been probably the best investment that I have ever made throughout vet school and now. Okay. Yeah. I know there's a lot of students that they, 
they've really just switched from using laptops and now everyone's pretty much using an iPad um, to take their notes and keep their notes and record stuff on. Like I have mine and I use OneNote actually. Um, a lot of people told me to use Notability, but I was like, I'm cheap and OneNote is free. So <laughs> that's what <laughs> I ended up with. But I think that's actually a really good idea, is the, especially on like a mobile service. Um, you can take as many as your as you have memory on your iPad then. Um, yeah. And then it kind of makes it things look a little bit more polished maybe when you whip that out and you're like, well, now I can explain it to my client right here. I'm not flipping through like the fluffy stained little notes of paper that I <laughs> that yeah. I have. It's just all nice. <laughs> and I think you also had um, a really good, I think, what was it, like a couple weeks ago now, you had a post on Instagram um, where you talked about the transition from being a competent vet into a confident vet. And was that something that you wish someone had told you about? Or I forget the the background on that. Yeah, so it was a surprise to me. Um, it wasn't as much getting out there and being totally clueless. I know that the fears that I had, and I'm sure that a lot of new grads have, is that you're going to get out there and be presented a case and you just have no idea what to do. And you can take as many steps back as you want to make things basic, but you know we all know how to do a physical exam. We all know how to break it down to at least some possibilities of what might be going on. And just going through that thought process, you know, you feel a lot more comfortable with what you know. It's just taking that knowledge that you know and seeing it in real life versus reading about it in made-up cases or, you know, studies that you read in journals. I don't know if terrifying is the right word, but uh, one example I'll use is anesthesia. So we read and... You know, there's all this research about anesthesia, but the first time that I've tried different anesthetic protocols, for example, in a pig, you know, I've never anesthetized the pig before. I was in practice and, you know, I, I read up on it. I knew all of the literature was correct. I asked several, um, several colleagues, you know, what sedation protocols to use. And I was still terrified when I put that station in that pig because I was like, I've never seen this before. You know, you can read about it, but until you see it and see how it's going to work, it's just, you know, you're, you're competent, but you haven't experienced it yet. And the only way to transition is to experience it and, you know, be ready for that and just embrace that sort of anxiety that comes with it a little bit because it's, it's almost unavoidable. Yeah, and I think about like um, you say like anesthetizing a pig, and the first thing that came to my mind was like malignant hyperthermia, and yeah, <laughs> and I'm like, okay, I need to read up on that a little bit more. But of course, like vet school, they're really good at hammering into your mind the things that can go wrong, and that's why you need to use a certain protocol and um, do your research about it. But again, that can bring that kind of fear of like, oh my gosh, what if this doesn't go right? But like you said, you just yeah. have to use your mentors, use your colleagues, um, use the sources you have so that you can have good experiences around those first um, attempts and move from competence into confidence. 
that was something that honestly like really struck me when I first read that and I was like oh my gosh that makes complete sense and then I ended up having like this whole long conversation with one of my own mentors um, while I was doing a spay neuter clinic and I was like I kind of see that happening over the course of the couple weeks that I was there from when I was like oh my gosh I have to like stab this uh, blade through the abdomen of this animal um, and of course by the end by the time I had finished my time there I was super, super confident doing what I needed to do and felt really safe doing my spays and neuters and everything. So I was like, oh my gosh, this actually played out in real life and I'm not even a vet yet. So this is, that was pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. I'm really glad that that happened. And I mean, it just, it just goes to show that, that thinking about some of these things too kind of makes it easier when, when they do happen to you. So then I'll go back to um, one of the recordings from Sarah, and um, this kind of ties into it, but the question was, what has been an unexpected joy of starting practice? And so this is what Sarah had to say on it. So that's what Sarah had to say, and I feel like that it kind of ties into what we just talked about of being kind of competent in something, and then you're you realize, oh my gosh, I actually can do this. But what are your thoughts on it? I would definitely agree. And I'm really happy that she's had such a great experience because, um, you know, you do have to, it's a huge risk. You know, you've, you've invested all of this time in your life and there's no way to know how practice is going to be until you're there. So it is a huge, um, just unknown factor that, that could cause people to be stressed, you know, and, the the great thing is, and this kind of diverts from um, from her point a little bit, but you know, even if even if you get out there and you realize that it's not for you, that's also okay. You know, you you've invested a lot of time in in your life getting here, and but you know, it's it's not worth the the stress that you bring from telling yourself, you know, well, I have to do this now that now that I'm through. It's also okay if you don't like it and you want to go a different um, a different way with it. But um, the the joys that you find actually being in practice come from I think they come from the clients and those those experiences. Yeah, I think that's something that I don't know, as like a vet student you don't really realize you're going to either enjoy or maybe not enjoy working with the clients. Um, until you hit your clinical years. So like for myself, we like you do maybe a couple client communication classes in your preclinical years, but it's not till you're actually in rotations in the hospitals, dealing with the clients every single day, calling them updates, and then um, bringing their animals back to them after they've had surgery or something that you realize just how much the people side of veterinary medicine um, is a big part. And for me, I like seriously enjoy working with the clients, um, seeing the smile on their faces, like when I bring their animal back or something and just how crazy they are about their animals. It's awesome. Um, yeah, but I didn't, I knew I would enjoy that, but I didn't know how much I would enjoy that until I actually hit those like clinical years. Um, and I think you hit on a really big point that like if you suddenly go into practice and you realize eh, this isn't exactly where I thought I wanted to be. Like, that is perfectly okay. Um, I don't know if there's enough conversation that happens around that because every time it's like, oh, vets are leaving the profession as if it's always a bad thing, which it's not. It just means that everything that led you up to this point, it doesn't mean that it was 
for nothing. Um, it helped you in your journey of wherever you are going. But again, off topic, but just felt like it needed to be said. But um, yeah. yeah, the whole like imposter syndrome thing, I feel like there's good points to the imposter syndrome. And then there's the not so good points. And that feeling like you don't know anything is good because it should light the fire underneath your butt that like encourages you forward to go and learn more about that topic um, or you realize, hey, I need to go ask somebody for help. And then you have like the not so good side of it, which puts the brakes on um, and builds that fear of like, oh my gosh, how am I going to be a good veterinarian if I don't know enough about this topic or if I'm nervous about this kind of surgery but yeah been really good just as a, someone who's going into that transition to hear from someone on the other side of the fence it's like nope you'll survive you'll be okay yeah I, I feel like imposter syndrome is a really interesting thing that happens to high performers obviously you know our profession is full of high performers and you know i find it fascinating that people that have learned so much and are so capable and have just so much that they can bring to the table as far as knowledge and value and just just everything that we offer as as both vets and vet students and you know we're also the ones stuck in that scenario where we don't think that we're supposed to be here and we don't think that we know enough so i think learning more about imposter syndrome is something that i'm um, going to do just to see if if i can try to to work through you know, why it happens exactly and, and see how I can use my experience to, to help other people kind of get through it. And that's a wrap on today's episode of That Vet Life Podcast. Thank you so much for joining us today. Now, before you go, I have a quick request. Now, podcasts and communities, they grow the best and they grow the biggest when the members spread the word. So if you know someone who you think needs to hear this episode, or if you found value in this episode and want to share it, go ahead and share this with your friends. And also don't forget to head over to vedexinternational.com and enroll in the VEDEX community for free to get access to a bonus version of this show. You'll also get some free swag and many, many other amazing benefits. Also leaving a review of the show on iTunes, we greatly appreciate it because again, it just helps get the word out. But until next time, y'all, I hope you enjoyed this episode of That Bet Life.